If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of 1 Thessalonians. When babies come into this world, they are hardwired to know certain things. It's just the way they are. They don't need to be taught to cry. They don't need to be taught to be hungry. And they don't need to be taught to blame their siblings when they're in trouble. They seem to know this. Nevertheless, even though they are hardwired for certain things, they need to be taught and they need to be led how to improve those things. So they might know how to cry, but we have to teach them what it means to communicate with us effectively. They might, not, they might know what it means to be hungry, but they need to learn how to use a fork and a spoon and not just their fingers when they pick up their vegetables. And when to blame their siblings and when not to so that they might learn what justice actually looks like. And the whole reason why we do this is, as parents, all of this makes our lives much easier. That's the rule number one. Rule number two, though, is we teach them these things because we want them to go out into the world as sort of fully formed adults, able and capable of benefiting the culture and the country and the prosperity of all that are around them. So too, when people are born into the kingdom of God, when they are reborn by the Spirit of God, they are hardwired for certain things. To be reborn means that you know something of the gospel. You might not know the completeness of the gospel. You might not understand the depth or the complexity of the gospel, but you know something of the gospel. That you were a sinner, that you were doomed for destruction, but Jesus Christ has redeemed you by the power of his blood, that he has imposed his own being in between you and God. And as such, he has taken on the penalty for our sin, even as God himself. So that those who trust in him and believe in him and live lives of faithfulness before him can and will be saved only and wholly by his grace. We come pre-wired with this. This is what we understand and know before we know anything else in the gospel. All of that being true, we still need to further that Knowledge. We still need to further our understanding of these things as we grow in the Lord in holiness. When Paul has looked at the Thessalonians and has talked to them about the, the quality of their initial birth, that as we've used the picture of the parable of the soils, that their, their roots have gone deep into the ground to withstand the persecution and the affliction that they're in, they have shown Paul tremendous perseverance through these difficult days. And Paul is incredibly thankful for them. But he does write back up in chapter 3 in verse 10 that he wants to come to them face to face so that he might supply what is lacking in their faith. That idea of supply what is lacking is a picture of somebody who is fully ready for what is before them. That somehow the, the Thessalonians are not fully ready. This is a word that's often used of mending of nets. So the fishermen would pull up their nets and they would have gaping holes in them where the fish would obviously escape and they would mend those nets. And Paul is saying, you are not prepared yet fully for the kingdom of God. There are things that you need to have fixed. These things revolve around their faith. I would say that that means both their faith and doctrine, what they believe, as we will see coming up later in chapter 4 and even somewhat today, but also their faithfulness before God. How are they to walk faithfully before God? So Paul is going to address this this morning. By the time we get to the fourth chapter, Paul has finished the first of his two basic objectives in the book. He's told the Thessalonians how much he loves them. He has talked to them about his relationship with them and how how dear they are to him and how glad he was to hear that he was dear to them as well. But because he cannot come and see them face to face, he has got to write them about these holes in their faith that he desires to mend 
So let's go and read 1 Thessalonians 4 as we hear of Paul mending these holes. We begin reading in verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of our God. As we go through here, I've got three basic points for you. You can see them in your handout. The first one, that as we come to this passage, Paul is, I think, imploring for us to deepen our devotion to God. Deepen, friends, your devotion to God. By the time we get to the end of the passage, it takes a pretty strong turn from kind of the tone that the earlier parts of the, the, the passage had. The Lord is an avenger. It's going to be about the destruction, in a sense, of those who do not follow the instructions that Paul is laying out for them. But Paul has front-loaded, actually, much of his imploring with the Thessalonians. The tone of his passage hasn't changed. Paul has been incredibly happy with the Thessalonians, and he's incredibly happy now. The reason why he has a much more stringent and strong tone in this is because there is an incredibly severe issue that faces them. And he wants to make clear the severity of the situation. It's not just mentioned at the end of our passage, but obviously at the beginning. He mentions twice the Lord Jesus in verse 1, that he is speaking in the Lord Jesus, and in verse 2, that he is in speaking instructions or commands through the Lord Jesus. That is, in both cases, he is invoking the authority and the power and the right of the Lord Jesus to set the direction of his people and how they are to walk and how they are to live and how they are to handle themselves in this fallen world. Therefore, it cannot be ignored. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is the one whom has called you into his kingdom for his glory. Therefore, you are to do these things. And what's more, Paul doubles down on that when he says this. He goes on to say, you ought to walk in this way. Now, when we hear ought to walk, what the, I'm sure the translators of the ESV and others meant for that to be is sort of a moral necessity. It's something that you morally must do. It's a moral ought. But oftentimes when we hear the word ought, we consider it as being something of a, an optional package. That this is a good thing for people to do, but only for people who are really terribly devoted. You should probably act this way. You should be done as a benefit, but it's, it's not really necessary. That's not what Paul means at all. What he actually uses is the strongest word that he probably had available to him for necessity. It is necessary for you to walk. When we came to you, you received from us this instruction, and this instruction was nothing less than how you have to walk as Christians. 
So this isn't sort of an optional package. Like when you go to buy a car and you think, okay, I'm going to buy a car, I'm going to go off-roading in it, so I'm going to get four-wheel drive, and then I'm going to get an off-road package on top of that. Paul's not saying that this is something that people who are really heavily devoted to holiness do. That, that are really devoted to God do. So you've got certain Christians who don't really care all that much, they're kind of on the fringes, but then you've got Christians who are really, they get into it and they really love it and so they want to they go to seminary and they want to do all these things that Christians do like read the Bible and pray. They're going to really be devoted to this. Paul says, no, that's, that's not how this works. If you've been called, you have to do this. This is how you have to live. There is no sort of optional package unless you consider like the wheels on your car being optional, Okay. That is how optional this is for Christians to live. You have to live like this. He says how you ought to or how it is necessary to walk and to please God. People back then walked everywhere. They didn't ride anywhere, so walk is just a way. They walked their whole lives from the moment they were born. Well, okay, maybe not. They were more advanced than us. This is not something that babies come hardwired with. But nine months old to a year old, they're walking around. And as they go through their lives, they're always walking. They didn't have desk jobs. They walked everywhere. They were always on their feet. And so this was the way they went through life. And so it became a metaphor for how they lived. To walk is to live. But notice he says how you are ought to or how it is necessary to walk and to please God. Just as it is necessary to live your life, so for a Christian it ought to be necessary to seek, at the very least, to please God. He's not just saying that this is the only way that you please God, but he's saying it is necessary to please God. You cannot walk in such a way that displeases God and think that you are a Christian. We do not live our lives anymore to please ourselves. It doesn't mean that we live without pleasure. It doesn't mean that we live without hope or joy but simply that uh, the way in which we live our lives has to be lived for God's pleasure and what he finds pleasurable. Paul pleads with them to understand this. It is a command, but nevertheless, Paul is pleading with them. These are commands. Verse 2, we read that they are instructions. It's the same idea that they are commands as well. And in the end, all of this is for, as he writes in the beginning of verse 3, the will of God, your sanctification. That is a big, long, nice word that simply means that God is setting you aside to make you holy. It comes from the exact same word as holiness does in Scripture. It means that God is making you holy. These These things are the will of God for you to become holy in him. Now, that holiness means two things. First, it it clearly means that we are the kind of people who do what is right. So to enact the will of God, to do the will of God, is indeed to be holy because you're doing the thing that's right. And I think that if we were to kind of pull everybody in here and and Christians in general and even the nation as a whole, they would probably say that holiness is, is sort of doing what God commands of us. That's one of the ways to think about it. The second thing that holiness implies, though, is not so much just doing what is right, but it is being set aside for a special purpose for God. This used to be the difference between what we would call common and vulgar things and the holy things. So vulgar didn't mean always what it meant today. It used to mean just the things that were normal and common to everybody, but there were holy things that were set aside for God. And we too, as believers, have been set aside for God. And as we've been set aside for God, we ought to look different than the world. So for Paul, there 
there isn't a difference between Jew and Gentile anymore, but there is still a vast difference between those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. And what he is saying here is that the way you walk through the world cannot be in such a way that you look like unbelievers. You have to walk through the world in a way that sets you aside from them that is marked by holiness. Holiness and our desire for it cannot be some sort of flippant exercise in the Christian life. It has to be something that we are devoted to. And we are devoted to it precisely because we've been called to it. So in 1 Peter 1, Peter says this in, in language that echoes with what we've got here. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. As God is distinct from everything else in creation, so then you as a people chosen for him and set aside for him ought to also look different. Or, as Paul has already said back in chapter 2 and verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. There is very little in all of Thessalonians, in any book in the New Testament that doesn't argue that every single Christian has a necessity to deeply devote themselves to God. There, there isn't some sort of cheap devotion that Christ is calling for. He always calls for a deep devotion to him and to living in a way that is appropriate for his calling. This is why he says no one puts their hand to the plow and looks behind them. This is why he says you must count the cost before you come. This is why he says you must take up your cross daily and follow him. Deeply devote yourselves to God. Secondly, you must pursue the purity of God. The question might become then, can you give us an example of how we can be holy like this? What does it mean for us to be holy like this? Paul gives an example directly at the end of that. When he says in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is pointing both back up to the first two verses and then further down to the end of verse 3 where he says that you abstain from sexual immorality. We are living in unprecedented times because people are using the term unprecedented times more than they ever have before. And that often, even before COVID and before all of the other things that are going on in our world, got thrown around when it comes to issues of sex and the way our culture perceives sex and relates sex back to us. And we think that this is somehow unprecedented. And when it comes to certain aspects, it probably is. When we talk about pornography or something like that, it probably is. But sexual immorality, it is probably not. Our culture is not further along on the scale of sexual immorality than the very culture that Paul was writing to. Human preoccupation and perversion of sex is not unique to our age. The immorality of the ancient world was well documented and incredibly well known. It was woven more effectively and more fully than even in our own day into the woof and warp of everyday existence. This is why they had cult prostitutes because it was just part of religion, part of the secular way in which you handled yourself. They didn't have even morality or immorality typically when it came to sex. This was, these were new categories for these people quite often. And so you are not to think, and this is important to understand, that Paul's advice to the Thessalonians is any less radical than it is to any of the most liberal people in the world today. It is just as radical then as it is now. 
This is some of the problems that you get when people want to be Christian and throw aside what Paul says about morality and especially how it's handled in terms of sex. And they say, well, Paul didn't know what we know now. The culture is different now than it was then. No, the culture is not. Paul's advice to the Thessalonians is just as radical as his advice is to us. He says very clearly, you are to avoid sexual immorality. That is, you are to have nothing to do with it. Sexual immorality is simply any sex outside of heterosexual marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman is the idea that is being pervaded here. Whether it is adultery, whether it's fornication, whether it's in, in dealing with pornography, it doesn't matter what that is. Outside of one man and one woman, it is, un, uh, it is impossible for Christians to engage in it. It's not impossible, but it should be. They are not to engage in it. You are to abstain from it. Now, it's interesting, somewhat, Now, Paul doesn't focus on what that means. And I think one of the first questions that comes up for a lot of people is to ask what that means, especially when you're not married and you have, or you have children who are getting up to that age or you've got to fight through singleness and, and understand what it means. The question always becomes, well, what does this mean? How far can we go? What can we do that would be considered not sex but still engage in certain activities? Now, as far as that question goes, and asking for clarification, it's a really good question. But I have to say that if that is the first question that comes to mind, it's probably a wrong first step. Because if you're seeking clarification, okay. But if you're seeking permission to see how far you can go without crossing a line, that is not what Paul is getting at. At times, people who ask this question sound a lot like they're asking, what is the very least I can do and still be considered faithful? Or, how much can I indulge the flesh and still be considered faithful? That's not a helpful way. Again, C.1, we ought to be devoted as much as we can to the holiness that God has called us to be. We ought to maximize our holiness and faithfulness, not simply find out what we can get away with. Often this question sounds a lot like people who want to say, I wonder how far I can lean over this precipice before I fall. There's only one way to actually find out, and that is to lean over until you fall. Needless to say, that's a dangerous way to go. So Paul calls us to sexual morality and to avoid and to abstain sexual immorality. And then he says something in verse 4 that has perplexed people for ages, and I am going to make perfectly clear to you this morning. So you'll leave with no doubt as to what this means. You won't, actually. You'll I often talk like that, but you're not going to today. Verse 4 is one of the most difficult verses in the, the New Testament, certainly the most difficult, I think, in 1 Thessalonians. In the ESV, it reads like this, that each one of you know how to control his own body. If you have a Bible with a footnote, and especially the, those ESV Bibles have a footnote, which then takes you down to the other two ways that this is typically translated. One saying, or how to take a wife for himself, that each one of you should know how to take a wife for himself, or should take a wife for himself, or how to possess his own vessel. So if you look at something like the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, they talk and they translate this, that each one of you should know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor. The KJV, however, says that every one of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. 
And it seems like with translations that are that divergent from one another, what we're actually dealing with are manuscripts that have different words in them, but we're not. All of those translations come from the exact same Greek words. It's a very difficult solution because we really just don't understand exactly what Paul is getting at. The KJV is the most wooden. There are a couple of reasons why the others are accepted, though. First, when it comes to thinking that what this actually means is that each one of you should go and get a wife or attain a wife. The reason why Paul might mean that is because the word for vessel is used in other contexts to refer to both husbands and wives. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 does that. And frankly, the word vessel, as we're going to see, can be used for people in general. It's just a metaphor for people. The second good reason why is the meaning of the word acquire in that, or as the ESV has it, how to control. It's usually what grammarians call an ingressive verb, which means it's a verb that indicates a start of something. Okay? So it's hard to imagine how you start to possess a body. You just, you have a body, but you can acquire a wife. You can acquire another vessel, okay? And when we use the word acquire, realize that's antiquated language. We don't talk like that anymore. It means you're going to go get a wife, okay? And we probably don't talk like that anymore. You're going to go ask a woman to marry. She will say yes, and then you'll be very happy. So that's what, that's what they're getting at. That's what this means. Now, there's a couple of reasons why I don't think that it's probable that Paul means this. One of the good parts is, clearly, this is a way to avoid sexual immorality. That if sex is only legally within the scope of the Bible, gained in marriage, then to avoid sexual immorality, to go gain a wife, is the way to do this. However, Paul never talks like that. He does say, if you're going to burn, it's better to have a wife than to burn with passion. So there's truth to that. But in 1 Corinthians 7, when he says that, long before he gets to that point, he says, you ought to just be single. He makes it very, very clear that marriage is not the epitome of the Christian life. And, and the church has not done a good job with this. It's like we've avoided that entire section of 1 Corinthians with all of our heart and passion. Being single is what Paul holds out as what he wants for every Christian. You ought to be single. I want you to be like I am. But if you can't, then you ought to do this. And the whole idea is that you are able to control yourself. It's very odd for Paul then to turn around here and say, abstain for sexual immorality by just going out and getting a wife. Almost like he's bypassing control altogether. So that's one of the reasons why I don't like the particular translation of wife. The ESV's body is much better. And again, the New Testament uses the word vessel as a term for body Quite often, Paul does it in 2 Corinthians 4 when he talks about himself being a jar of clay or in Romans 9 when vessels prepared for glory or for destruction. There is a huge negative to both wife and body, though, and that is that the Greek has very, very good words for wife and body and translated those words are wife and body. Like there's just a real easy way for Paul to say, go get a wife. And that is for him to just flat out say, go get a wife. And there's a really easy way for him to say, control your body. That is just control your body. He uses language like that all the time. Why he doesn't hear is a bit of a mystery. However, I think that there is a good explanation for it. And I think it's an explanation that is readily accessible to all of us and probably helpful today that Paul is trying to use a very gentle but straightforward euphemism for what they are to control. 
that it's part of them that they are supposed to control and not the entirety of them. He's not talking about everything. He's not talking about your ears. He's talking about controlling parts of your body. Okay? And so it's a helpful euphemism because Paul is just trying to be smooth and gentle with it and he's trying not to kind of be as frank as he possibly could be. The whole point of this, and I think it does point to this, and by the way, 1 Samuel, David talks like this, and he uses the word vessel almost clearly to refer to this, so there's, there's also biblical usage for it. The focus and the purpose of this, I think, is to shift from a general call to abstain from sexual immorality to a very specific call that men primarily should learn to control themselves. And we need to qualify that. Because it's not as though women don't need to control themselves, okay? We might say it takes two to tango, but it takes two to do other things as well. And so women also need to utilize self-control. Women also need to understand how to protect themselves from these sorts of desires. However, sexual sin is, I think, without doubt, more prevalent and more persistent in men than in women, and it is something that we deal with more than women do. It doesn't mean that we deal with it all the time, and you never deal with it, but certainly, more obviously, is a problem for men. And so Paul is focusing specifically on men and telling them to control their own desires. He goes on to say that this hurts or it can exploit brothers. In verse 6, again, part of the oddity of this verse, that no one transgresses or wrong his brother in this matter. People have in church history thought that this is now relating to business matters, but it's almost certainly not. It's certainly still relating to this issue of sex. How can this relate to that issue of sex? The first thing to note is that Paul very clearly thinks that your private practices in sex have community outcomes. That this is not just private matters. And evangelicals, for whatever reason, in the past several years have completely and utterly forgot this thing that they screamed from the mountaintops in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. It matters how people handle themselves sexually behind closed doors. It matters personally and it matters politically and it matters publicly. Now, what Paul means by this, here we're on pretty loose ground. I'm not sure. And part of the problem is wrapped up in the fact that this is a historical book, and Paul is writing it to a historical circumstance. Timothy has come back and given him a report, and who knows what's going on. It could be that there's adultery going on in Thessalonica and within the church. It could be that there is just rampant sex going on everywhere within the church, and Paul is trying to squash it. I don't know. I will say a couple of things about how you can possibly wrong a brother in something like this. One is simply by example. If you are engaging this type of activity, then you are by example leading a brother into it. Repetition legitimizes actions. And when you see other people doing it, you think that it's okay yourself. And certainly Paul would not encourage such behavior. It could also mean, as I said, something along the lines of adultery or just rampant sex going on there in Thessalonica. But I think that we would do wrong to the passage to not note that this word brother, likely in context, also means sister. And I don't mean that as like English word games. I mean that in the Greek it can literally mean that because of the way Greek uses masculine and feminine words. So, 
Paul wants this to be a singular word, and he wants it to be brothers and sisters, not just people in general. And so it very well could be that you are also hurting not just brothers, but also sisters. We need to understand that marriage has always been present in cultures, not only as a symbol of God's relationship to man, but also because it protects women. It has always protected women. And that doesn't mean that it's always been used rightly to protect women. Sometimes it has been used to actually oppress women, but it has been there to protect them. When sex is then removed from marriage, women are the main parties who are hurt, not men. Feminism has done a number of good things. It has given us the right of women to vote. It has established women as equals with men and made that a secular reality as much as it is an ecclesiastical reality. But insofar as they have instructed women and told women and told society in general that it is good for you to remove sex from marriage, the parties who are most hurt by that are women. Do not wrong your sister in these things. Do not wrong one who is in the Lord in these things and leave them hurt. In all of this, I think the question is to be asked, why? Why why does this matter at all? Because if you go out into the wider world, these seem like capricious and arbitrary rules that a very stodgy old man wrote down simply to control the lives of other people. So why do we care about it? Why do we think that it's important? Why do we care about it within the church? Why do we care about it and even talk about it publicly? We care because it pictures something to do with God. Look at what he says in verse 5. Paul says, Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That is, you are to control yourself. You are not to live based on the impulses of your body like Gentiles do because they don't know God. There's something about knowing God that changes the rules here, that changes the way in which we look and we think about sex. Throughout scripture, God has always been pictured in his relationship with his people through marriage. We, we hear about it even as we read from Ezekiel 36 earlier, that I will be their God and they will be my people. That doesn't ring to us exactly like a marriage, uh, something to, to say about marriage, but nevertheless, when he talks like that, he, he's using the kind of language that you will be my wife and I will be your husband. He's looking at his people as though this is exactly what he means. Last week, we read the 16th, part of the 16th chapter of Ezekiel, and there is probably no greater chapter in the Bible that portrays God as Father, loving his people as a wife. So he is the bride, or he is the bridegroom. They are the bride. This begins the scriptures and it ends the scriptures. Adam and Eve come together as husband and wife in the image of God. And in the last days, we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lord to his people. God is always pictured. As much as he is pictured as father to us, we realize that even in that picture of father to us, there is now a limited sense in which that is true. That is how one person of the Trinity relates to us. But the way that the entire Godhead relates to us is oftentimes as a husband to a bride. So, What does this mean for us? In the Old Testament and through the New Testament, 
To commit adultery is to commit idolatry, and to commit idolatry is to commit adultery. It is continually pictured as that. So if you go after other gods, you are actually committing adultery. This is why it is pictured so often as adultery and why the New Testament uses the same kind of language for people who are unfaithful. We think of it typically in one direction, though. We think of it typically as idolatry being equated with adultery. But it works in reverse as well. Adultery is nothing more than idolatry. It is thinking that God is different than he is. This is exactly what is stressed, I think, in Ephesians 5, where Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Listen, if Christ purchased his bride this way, and then Paul says, the way that Christ has purchased his bride is the way you have to live with her. To then think that you can have a union in marriage that is supposed to picture Christ in the church, it means that if you go outside of marriage for that kind of union, you are saying something about Christ. And you are especially saying that if you are a Christian. So to engage in sexual immorality is to deny Christ. And I mean that more than just saying it is to deny his command. It's clearly to deny the command that he puts down for us. But sex is a metaphor of something larger and better than itself. And in here, to have sex outside of marriage implies to God's people and to others that God's people might be multiple at the very least. As though, as a man, if you can have sex with many women that God can have many peoples that belong to him and thus not have them be unified. There is great theological travesty in that and you are picturing that when you engage in this behavior outside of a covenant marriage or perhaps that Christ is not the only bridegroom for his people. That if a woman can have multiple lovers, then certainly you can have multiple people who exist as a groom over you. This also is a travesty. There is no one who can have a match for the love of Christ elsewhere. You can have no other Christ than this Jesus. Or rather, because our union with Christ is pictured in this way, that the union with Christ is somehow flippant, temporary, fleeting, whimsical, or absolutely devoid of substance. Friends, these attitudes are dangerous. It means that you don't understand sex. It means that you don't understand Christ. It means you don't understand God. It means you don't understand the church. And to continue to engage in, in activities like this is to say that you are denying Christ not just in command, but in image and in picture as well. How we handle ourselves in attitude and desire and conduct says something about the way in which God deals with us. This is why we're talking about pursuing the purity of God. Because God has pursued you and he has caught you and he has brought you into a relationship with him that is exclusive and only. There is Christ and there is his bride. To think that we can engage in a union outside of that picture is foolish. This is the way that Christ handles himself. It is the way that God handles himself. So it is the way that we are to handle ourselves, pursue the purity of God. And by doing so, we thirdly flee the fury of God. Paul doesn't hold back. 
If you wrong your brother, lead him into sin. If you wrong your sister, the Lord is an avenger. And you're probably thinking, I don't remember him in the movies, but it's, it's not exactly the same thing. It means that Jesus upholds the rights of others, that he will pursue what is right and good, and that he will make sure that what is right is done, that justice is seen, not only done, but is seen to be done. He will not let you idly lead a brother or a sister into sin. The Lord will be an avenger. And he says very clearly that we told you this and we solemnly warned you. There wasn't a doubt that you were presented with this information a long time ago. And they might have been struggling with this. They might have fallen back into some things. And Paul is simply reminding them that this is clear. He hasn't called you into impurity, but he's called you to holiness. He hasn't called you so that you can continue to live your life like the rest of the world lives theirs, but he's called you to be pure before him. And again, I think that it's important that we note that when you or anyone else seeks to step aside from these commands, Paul's very clear. You're not denying and rejecting me. You're not rejecting the church, you're not rejecting Crossway, you're not rejecting the pastor, you're not rejecting the one who is giving you the message. You are doing nothing more than rejecting God himself. And listen, that's important because the only way you can be saved is to not reject God. That is in and of itself. The very definition of hell is the rejection of God. Now, we're not saying that you have to be holy and you've got to get your life together before you can come to Christ. That isn't what the gospel is at all. You don't need to be holy before you can be saved. You don't need to have your life right before you can be saved. You don't need to stop being all of the evil things you are before you can be saved. Christ saves you wholly because of his grace. You don't clean yourself up before you come to God. God cleans you up after that. God's grace is good enough to cover every sin, regardless if it's in terms of sin, of sex, sin in thievery, sin in idolatry, sin in any of a number on almost every case, Christ is able to save you from that sin. And you are free to come to him at any time and plead with him on the basis of his own, his own death and his own life that he might give these things to you. But simply because Salvation is a gift of God given to us in the gospel because Jesus Christ has died and risen again does not mean that Christ does not demand things of us. This is the fruit of a life that has been lived in Christ. And these are young people. I have no doubt that Thessalonians have been stumbling over themselves here. And Paul isn't harsh on them. He's simply reminding them of the difficulties that face them. He's reminding them of the fact that Jesus is one who will come and bring a sword. And he is reminding them to stay close to Christ lest they fall. People who continually engage in sexual immorality without a desire to repent, without an acknowledgement that it is wrong, are disregarding not man but God. And if they think that they can be covered by the grace of Christ, if they think that they can be covered by the forgiveness of Christ without repentance, they are wrong. And friends, I cannot tell you this enough. They cannot be given the assurance of salvation. We, we cannot look at people who sin in this way without repentance 
and say, well, they must believe in Christ because they've been baptized in the church or because they confess that they believe in Christ. Listen, confession is not just with your mouth. Confession is with your life. It is necessary to walk in these ways. The rejection of God's forthright commands is a rejection of the work of the Spirit in you, the very Spirit that Christ has given to you. It is a rejection of the central nature of your calling. He has called you to be holy, not to impurity. It is a rejection of the way that God relates to humans, as we've talked about. It is a rejection of the entirety of Christianity and the entirety of salvation itself. To give people the impression that such acts are either of no importance or even in accordance with Christ's will for their lives. I have heard of adulterers going to certain churches because those pastors support them in their adultery. That is defiling to Christ, let alone to that man who now has absolutely no reason to stop his sin. Such actions, such words, mislead people and send them straight and happy into hell. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes in verses 9 to 11. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then, you would need to go out of the world, okay? So you can't associate with these people. And he's saying, not the people out in the streets. They're all idolaters and thieves, and they're all sexually immoral. I, I would have to ask for a rapture. And Paul says, I'm not asking for a rapture. But now I am writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindlered, not to even eat with such a one. A couple things to point out about that. Paul, in this short section, is clearly not mentioning repentance. He clearly thinks that that is, that is key. If they repent of these things, then you are to call them brother. How many times shall we forgive them? Seven times seven, Jesus says. As many times as you need to, repentance is the key. If they repent, you can bring them back in. But if they don't repent, they must be treated as an outsider. And what's more, that sexual sin, while prevalent in our age and, and frankly throughout all ages is not alone. Even though he is talking about a grievous sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 5, he says and he equates this to being greedy. So don't think that because you don't commit sexual sin that you can have as much greed in your life as you want to. All of the holiness stuff that we've been talking about here applies to other categories as well. And greed is one of those things. Whether it's greed or an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, you are not to even eat with such a one. The fury of God in the rejection of his son will come down upon those who engage in sin without repentance. But where there is repentance, friends, there is always the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. If you struggle in these areas, repent and know that because Christ is great, you are forgiven. And when you fail tomorrow, what shall you do? Repent. I hope Gary was in the back saying repent out loud. He told me he would do that someday. Say amen to that. Repent. When you fail, what do you do? You repent and Christ's grace is there. But hardening yourself, 
thinking that the way in which you live is just perfectly fine outside of that repentance is a quick way to harden your heart and to establish a separation between you and Christ that will never, ever be bridged. Anytime we talk about sex or holiness, the response from the world and to our shame, much of the evangelical world, tends to be to downplay it or to mention that morals can morph and change at will. They knock the preaching of such things as legalism, which I hope and I've established that it is not, and contend that such teaching will actually keep people from coming to the truth because it's so out of step with the culture. How do you expect to win people when you talk like this? I'm guessing the same way Paul expected to, through the work of the Spirit. But friends, make no doubt about it. This kind of preaching is always going to be out of step with the culture. It wasn't in step with the culture in the 1950s. It wasn't in step with the culture in Victorian England. It wasn't in step with the culture in medieval Christianity in Europe. It was never in step with the culture. You can go back even into the Old Testament and the way the Israelites handled themselves. It wasn't in step with their culture. It wasn't in step with Jesus' culture. It wasn't in step ever with culture because this world is filled with sinners and the culture is always sinful. They might hide it in different ways. It might not be as flagrant as it is today, but it's always there. We preach this not because it is something that will gain you salvation. We don't talk about abstaining from sexual immorality as if doing that is what gains you salvation. But as the right way of living out your salvation in the spirit with fear and trembling. So all of us need to be holy before God. Let the people of God rejoice in the truth here. Work hard to maintain it in our midst. Equipped with grace for those who have fallen, mercy for those who repent, and love above all for our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom of his people. And we pray that as we seek to live honorable and holy lives before him, that he is indeed glorified by us because he is, as we will sing, a wonderful and a merciful Savior. Let us pray. Father, through your grace and kindness, we pray that you would give us all a right understanding of these things and, what's more, fortitude to rightly live in light of such knowledge. Our fallen nature has made us all prone to these issues in some fashion or another. No one here is holy in such a way that they can have a right and a claim on salvation. No one here is so above lust, is so above any of the issues that have been mentioned today that they do not need to repent of them. Our rejection of you and sin is always met with compassion and mercy when we admit our failings and repentance and seek your grace through Christ. So as your people, called by your name, leave here today, may we do so deeper in our devotion, pursuing a purity that looks like yours in our lives, and by faith in Christ, fleeing from the fury and wrath that is to come. We ask for these things for the good of your name and for the good of your people. Amen.